Well, it is good to be uh, back with you again and back preaching again. Uh, I do want to say thank you to our elders uh, who gave me uh, the time off the last four Sundays uh, not preaching. Uh, actually, I did preach last Sunday uh, in Milwaukee because I promised to do it a long time ago. But it was, one, it was an old sermon, so it was okay. Um, but the time off was needed and wonderful, and I, uh, I truly am energized as I hit the ground running this week and as we head into the fall. Thank you to our ministry teams who navigated a move to this new space uh, without me around and without Emily uh, in some ways. Uh, it's really lovely to be here in this space. This is my first time here. Uh, it's air-conditioned. It's nice. I'm, I'm nice and cool and comfortable right now. You can hear me, right, without all the echo, echo, echo. Like, it's good. Uh, and then lastly, thank you to all my friends uh, who filled in as guest preachers. Uh, while I was gone, they did so excellently, and it was um, it's helpful. I, I could be... Uh, at peace knowing you were in good hands and so anyway but it's good to be back and not only am I back uh, preaching but our preaching series on the book of Esther is back so if you're with us we did the first half uh, in the beginning of the summer and now we're going to pick up and do the second half of the book for the remainder of the summer so the first thing I have to do is get you caught up on where we are in the story since we've had this long interlude so where we are if you don't Esther is an Old Testament book about the people of God living in exile So they're living in a city called Susa, which is in modern-day Iraq, and they're living under the mighty Persian Empire. So being in exile means they're not in control. They're not in power, right? They're this uh, suffering minority community in the mighty Persian Empire under King Ahasuerus, or better known in history as King Xerxes I. And we've entitled this whole series, The Hidden Hand of God, because Esther famously never mentions the name of God which, uh, you know, is unique in a book that's in the Bible, which is all about God, right? It's unique that there's a whole book that never once mentions the name of God. And so you could think, you could perhaps uh, deduct from this that maybe God is absent, or that maybe he has forgotten his people as they live in this foreign secular land under a foreign secular king. And yet the, the, the author is masterfully showing us that things are not always as they seem on the surface. Even without one single miracle, without his name even being mentioned, the hidden hand of God is at work through every scene, through all the ordinary events uh, in the book, through what we might call coincidences, to keep his promises to his people, to work out his purposes for his kingdom. It's a wonderful story. There are many coincidences in the book of Esther, but in the words from the first Incredibles movie, coincidence? I think not. There are There is no coincidence that King Xerxes sent his first wife, Vashti, into exile because she refused to obey his orders. And it is no coincidence that the young Hebrew girl, Esther, of all people, is chosen as Xerxes' next wife, so that a Jewish woman is now the queen of Persia. And it is no coincidence that Esther's father figure, her cousin Mordecai, works in Xerxes' administration at the precise time when a man named Haman, who's the second most powerful man in all of Persia, he tricks the king into ordering the genocide of all the Jewish people throughout all the Persian empire simply because he felt slighted by Mordecai, because Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. So that's where we are in the story. These people, the Jewish people living in Susa, stand under a a, a murderous sentence. It's like going to be a purge a few months from now, where people are allowed in the Persian Empire are allowed to take up arms and kill their Jewish neighbors. 
And so now Esther and Mordecai are working together from the positions they have been given by God to get this evil edict overturned, to save their people from destruction. Today, we're going to see that it is no, co- it is no coincidence that on the precise night when Haman decides he can't wait for the purge, he's going to get the king to order Mordecai's execution the very next day. On that very night, the king has a sleepless night. And actually, that changes everything. Coincidence? I think not, right? It is the hidden hand of God that has control even over the sleeping patterns of the most powerful man in the world in order to bring about his own purposes for the good of his people. So I've entitled this, The Hidden Hand of God and a Sleepless Night. So would you stand for the reading of the scripture lesson? We're in Esther chapter 6, this is verses 1 through 11. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. And so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done to the man whom the, the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to king, For the man whom the, delight, whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, that we are not left to figure out who you are on our own, that you have revealed yourself in the pages of scripture and, and chiefly through the person of Jesus Christ. So thank you also now for your spirit, because without him, we would not be able to understand anything of your word. And so we ask for his help right now. And I ask that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? So while I was away, something amazing happened that we have yet to discuss and celebrate together, and that is that the Milwaukee Bucks won their first NBA championship, yeah, in 50 years. 
It's amazing. Bucks and six, literally. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, it's awesome for our entire state. I don't care if you're not a fan. You've got to get into it. Small market teams. A small market team won the NBA championship. But I want to ask you, do you remember who won the NBA championship last year? In the quarantine year, in the bubble in Orlando, Florida. Do you remember? It was LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers. Boo, right? One of the most, I love LeBron, he's great. But the Lakers, one of the most storied franchises in NBA history. A big market team with a big market roster to go with it. I don't know if you remember this. After they won the championship in the post-game interview, LeBron James, who had just won his fourth NBA championship in 10 NBA Finals appearances, which is incredible. He just won his fourth Finals MVP, Most Valuable Player. And he also has four season, whole season Most Valuable Players to his name. One of the most decorated athletes ever. He was asked what this latest championship meant to him. If you remember, LeBron answered, if I, may, if I may editorialize it slightly, he says, I want my darn respect. I want my darn respect. That's something, isn't it? Arguably, one of the greatest basketball players to ever play, the, maybe the greatest, to ever play the game. He has everything you could possibly want in this life, but he wants something that he feels he doesn't have, something that feels so elusive. I want my darn respect. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest, so do we. Don't we? No matter else, whatever else we may have in this life, one of the things we crave most in this world is respect. That is, recognition. To receive our due. To be, to be esteemed rightly in the eyes of others. One of the worst things we can experience as human beings is to feel like people don't see you for who you are, right? Or don't recognize you for what you've done. And it's such a powerful force in the human experience that one of the most respected men in the game of basketball says, I don't have enough. I need more. I want more. I think LeBron says out loud what we spend most of our lives quietly saying to ourselves. I want my darn respect. And that's what Esther 6 is about. It's about the pursuit of respect. If you notice, the most dominant word used throughout this chapter is actually the word honor. You heard it repeated over and over again. Who is it the king delights to honor? But the Hebrew word is fuller than our English word for honor. The Hebrew word means more like respect, recognition, distinction. To be valued, to be highly esteemed, to be cherished, even. Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? That's the theme of this chapter. Everybody wants it. Everybody in this room wants it. But the question is, how do you get it? How do you go about it? The author is going to show us in this passage two paths, two ways that we pursue honor, respect, There's the way of Mordecai and the way of Haman. And the chief question repeated in this passage several times is, what should be done, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? That king meaning King Xerxes. Who is the man that the king delights to honor? But as always, we've got to look beneath the surface to a different king. Because this passage is actually going to show us the answer as it relates to the greater king, the true king, the hidden king, God who is at work behind every scene. 
The real question is, who is the man that God, the king, delights to honor? What I want you to see this morning is that the answer is that God honors the humble, but he humbles the proud. God honors the humble, and he humbles the proud. Those are our two points. He honors the humble, and he humbles the proud. First of all, God honors the humble. And this is the story of Mordecai. And I know we're in chapter 6, so I've got to catch you up a little bit. But if, as, as chapter 6 opens, as the curtain opens at this point, you've got to know that for Mordecai is a forgotten man. And what I mean by that is that six years prior, in a story that's recorded us back in Esther 2, Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai overheard two of the king's eunuchs named Bigthon and Teresh. What a great name. I imagine Bigthon is like this big, bulky guy, you know. He just, he just won the, um, what was the thing down there? Uh, CrossFit Games, yes. I, I had X Games in my mind. I was like, that's not right. No, he, so two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthon and Teresh, were hatching a plan to, to kill the king, to take him out. Now, you've got to know, at this point, Mordecai has a decision to make. He works for the king. He's employed by him, but the king does not share his faith or his nationality or his character or his values. The king probably doesn't even know that Mordecai exists. It would have been easy for Mordecai to do nothing, right? Just let things play out as they will. Why should he care what happens to this pagan king? Or maybe even worse, he could have joined in on the assassination plot, but that's not who Mordecai is. He is faithful to his job. He's loyal to the king. He promptly tells Queen Esther about the assassination plan, who promptly tells the king and gives Mordecai the credit for ratting them out. Bigthon and Teresh are executed as traitors and all is well in the kingdom again. Mordecai, I love this. Mordecai is the living embodiment of Jeremiah 29. That's where God told his people how to live while they are in exile. You know what he said? God said through the prophet, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's what Mordecai's doing. He's seeking the welfare of Persia. He's protecting Persia's king from harm. Now, friends, what should have happened next is that Mordecai should have been honored greatly. He should have been rewarded greatly. There's that word again, right? Honor. He should have been given respect, recognition, distinction for this great act. Ancient kings had all the motivation in the world to reward acts of loyalty in order to protect themselves from future assassination attempts, right? But nothing happens. No no honor is given to Mordecai. No gift, no promotion, no party. It seems that Xerxes has forgotten Mordecai. And then to make matters worse, in the very next chapter, after chapter 2, the king honors Haman, of all people. And we are to assume that the promotion that should have gone to Mordecai went to Haman instead. Right? We know what this feels like, don't we? On the one hand, to not be given the recognition that we think we deserve. And then on the other hand, to watch someone else receive what should have been ours. That hurts, doesn't it? It stings. You know why it stings? Because we want our darn respect. And so now Mordecai has a choice again. What do you do when you've been overlooked and forgotten? What do you do 
when you haven't been honored the way you deserve. You know what Mordecai does? He gets up and he goes to work every day for the next six years. He doesn't quit. He doesn't storm out. He doesn't complain. He doesn't demand his due. He puts his head down and he keeps being faithful in the king's administration. Brothers and sisters, this is what we call humility. Mordecai is not concerned with selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, he keeps serving the king day in and day out for six years until this chapter, until chapter six. On the very day when Haman, Mordecai's rival and enemy, decides to assassinate him, legally, that is, he's going to seek an order from the king. On that very night, before Haman comes in to request to hang Mordecai, the king can't sleep. And why can't the king sleep? Because as the Greek translation makes explicit for us, it says the Lord took sleep from the king that night. Friends, the hidden hand of God sovereignly makes Xerxes sleepless in Susa, if you will. And think about this, friends. Of all the things that Xerxes could have done on a night when he can't sleep. By the way, he has a whole harem at his disposal. Of all the things he could have done, the Lord sovereignly has him read his own chronicles. (laughs) The book of memorable deeds from his kingdom. Probably hoping to bore himself to sleep, right? And then of all the things that Xerxes could have read in the book of memorable deeds, the Lord sovereignly has him read about the time when Mordecai thwarted an assassination attempt. And the king like sits up in bed and he's like, hey, what honor or distinction has been given to Mordecai? And he realized that nothing ever happened for him. And this whole sequence ends with Mordecai not being hanged the next day, but being honored, respected, celebrated publicly, riding on the king's own horse, wearing the king's own robe, receiving a parade this fit for a king. As Haman, of all people, has to walk before him saying, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Friends, here's the point though. All of this happens simply because the king can't sleep. In other words, it all hinges on God and God alone. Nobody else helps. This doesn't come about because Esther intercedes for him, not because of any human character does anything, but only because of the hidden hand of God. God does this all by himself. And the reason he does it is because God honors the humble. Because God remembers the forgotten. Xerxes forgets, but God remembers. Friends, this part of the story is to remind you what we already know in this world is that people will forget you. The Xerxes of the world will overlook you or forget you. Your father may even forget you. Your mother may neglect you. Your boss may overlook you. Your friends may not see you for who you are. Your spouse may not even honor you. But God never forgets you. Ever. This is telling us even if it feels like God has forgotten you. And I'm sure Mordecai had thought that God had forgotten him these six years. Even when it feels like it, 
This is to remind you that the Lord will never, ever, ever forget you. Those who belong to him. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Mordecai's story here is a microcosm of the Christian life as a whole. We may be forgotten here on earth, but God never forgets us. He delights to honor the humble. In fact, all of history is heading towards a parade. When all those who are in Christ will be dressed up in the king's own robe, that is the righteousness of his own son. We will have the king's own crown placed on our head and you will reign with him forever. And on that day, it will be publicly declared over you. This, this is my good and my faithful servant, my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Because the king delights to honor the humble. But secondly, God also delights to humble the proud. God humbles the proud. This is the story of Haman. Now, you've got you to catch this context as well, because Haman already has everything. Haman already has all the honor of being the second most powerful man in all of Persia. He has been given the king's very signet ring to act on his behalf. Everywhere that Haman goes, people bow down to him as if he were the king, except Mordecai, of course. And the last thing that happened before this chapter, before chapter 6, is that Esther throws a banquet. And the only people she invites to the banquet is her husband, the king, and Haman. Like, can you imagine? It's like if you were invited to a party at the White House, and then you show up, and it turns out to be just you and the Bidens. Like, that would be pretty amazing, right? You couldn't get to your Instagram fast enough to tell everybody you know. <laughs> That's how Haman feels as he's walking home from this party. He has to be the most honored individual in the kingdom to have such a privilege. She dined privately with the king and the queen. But as but all this, all this joy he has is undone by one tiny little thing. That is on the way home, Haman passes by the king's gate where Mordecai is there working. And once again, Mordecai does not bow to Haman, and Haman is ruined. He's undone. Listen to what he says to his wife when he gets home. This is chapter 5, verse 12. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All this is worth nothing to me. Haman has everything he could possibly want, but it is worth nothing because the one thing, because of the one thing he doesn't have. And that's the respect, the honor of this ordinary Jewish man named Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of pride. And the way of pride is incredibly fragile. Right? You know this, I know this. If you, if I, if we are seeking our own honor, our own prestige, it doesn't matter what, if everyone else gets on board with the plan. It's the one Mordecai who doesn't fall in line that will live rent-free in your head. It will eat at you. It will rob you of all the joy you should have. It will consume you. Haman has everything, and yet he feels like he has nothing because of Mordecai. 
And so that very night, he decides he's going to build the highest gallows in the entire city. And he's going to order, uh, he's going to get the order to hang Mordecai on this stake the very next day. So you can imagine that Haman probably didn't sleep that much, ni- much that night either, right? As this plot is twisting over in his head. And as soon as day breaks, he gets dressed. He runs out the door en route to the king's court to, re- to request this order of execution. And when he arrives, the king brings him right in. But before he can say a word, the king asks him a question. He says, Amon, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Amon thinks to himself, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? There's the way of pride again. The way of pride is so self-absorbed. He can't think of anyone else but himself. He wants his darned respect, and now he's going to get it. He thinks he is. Now notice what the honor that Haman recommends for himself, what it reveals about pride. Think about it. Haman has everything. He has power. He has possessions. He has ten sons, it tells us later. He can't advance any higher than he has in the administration. But what's the one thing he doesn't have? He's not the king. He's the number two. So what does Haman want from the king? For a day. I just want to be treated like the number one. I want to know what it feels like to be king. I want to wear his own robe. I want to ride on his own horse. I want everybody to praise me like I'm the king. Brothers and sisters, this tells us that the way of pride is never satisfied. It's never full. It always wants more and more and more. It can never be happy with what it has been given. Being number two is not enough. I, want to be, I won't be satisfied until I'm number one. And you probably live long enough to know that even if you become the number one, that doesn't satisfy either. And on and on and on it goes. On to the next thing, right? Because we've got to find something else because the way of pride is never full, never satisfied. And finally, the way of pride leads to a fall. Haman is the living embodiment of Proverbs 16, 18, which says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Wouldn't you have wanted to be a fly on the wall when Haman finishes describing the lavish honor he thinks is coming to him? And the king says, yeah, that's a great idea. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Can you imagine Mordecai's face, I mean, his jaw must have hit the floor. In fact, Amon, I want you to lead the horse through the town, and I want you to proclaim to everyone, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh, I would have loved to have seen this. And brothers and sisters, remember, this is all the Lord's doing. It is his hidden hand underneath all this that took sleep from the king that led to humble Mordecai being honored and proud Haman being humbled. Because this is the way of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of Haman and the kingdom of this world, the way up is up. Exalt yourself. Make a name for yourself. But in the kingdom of God, the way up is the way down. It's the way of the servants. It's the way of humility. First Peter 5, verse 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that? 
God opposes our pride. He's against it. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of the kingdom of God. But this is the way of the kingdom of God, not just because it was the way of Mordecai, but because it was the way of Christ. You know the story. Though Jesus Christ is the king, the number one, equal with the Father and the Spirit in glory, reigning in co-eternal majesty, he made himself nothing. Can you imagine? The prophet Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, we will esteem him not. You know what that means? We won't recognize him. We won't respect him for who he is. We won't respect God come in the flesh. Indeed, John says in his gospel, that's exactly what happens. John writes, he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Didn't care. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ took off his robe of light and he took on the robe of our humanity. Jesus Christ processed through the city, not on a noble horse, but on a lowly donkey, a servant. He set aside his kingly crown to put on a crown of thorns. His was the way of humiliation. Friends, God delights to honor the humble. And therefore, he has exalted Christ now, far above everyone and everything. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For Jesus, it was humiliation first, exaltation later. He humbled himself and he let God exalt him. And so it is with us. Friends, there really are only two ways of being in this world when it comes to this. Either you exalt yourself now, and God will humble you in due time, or you humble yourself now and let God exalt you at the proper time. Because God delights to honor the humble and to humble the proud. The way of Mordecai, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom is of delayed honor. It's humiliation now, exaltation later. Our job, your job, is to humble yourself. God's job is to exalt. And we have the sure promise that this is exactly what he will do. In John 12, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In March of uh, 2014, President Obama awarded medals of honor to 24 Army veterans who had served with distinction in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. You might be thinking, that was a long time ago. Only three of these veterans were still alive to receive their medals. Now, you might be asking, why had the other 21 died without receiving this highest honor? Well, it turns out they were overlooked due to their racial and ethnic backgrounds because they were all Jewish or Hispanic. But what happens, for, for 12 years, a Pentagon committee was tasked to review the records, the book of memorable deeds, if you will. 
to find instances of discrimination in the, on the military. And they've looked and they found that these men had served with honor and distinction, but they had been forgotten, overlooked. But not anymore. They were honored with their medals. They were honored with the parade fitting for these heroes. Can you imagine how these men must, and their families must have felt being honored 50 years after the fact? Well, one day you won't have to guess. You will know what it will feel like. It will be, it will be so for those who are in Christ. I'll close with this. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You hear that? One day, you will be like him. Honored, exalted, seen for who you really are in Christ, seen for what you did in the name of Christ that no one else ever saw. This is our path. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we know the way of pride. We know because it rages in each one of us. We too want our darn respect. So Lord, even though it is so counterintuitive to the way we are wired and the way this world works, Lord, show us the truth of the gospel, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lord, help us to choose the path of Jesus, the path that he walked before us of humility and trust that you will exalt us at the proper time. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.